Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is December 7th, 2021. Um, I, I, I have to admit, I, I really, I like doing this. So Pearl Harbor was 80 years ago today. And 80 years before that was the first year of the Civil War. Okay. And 80 years before that, Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown, which was the end of the Revolutionary War. So it's kind of like we're holding hands here and you kind of realize that, you know, it's, we're really not that old. We're kind of still kind of new at this and trying to figure it out. And we are lucky enough today on this uh, Pearl Harbor Day to uh, re-welcome our friend Jonathan Allen, senior political reporter for NBC News based in Washington, D.C. And of course, so we've talked to him about his books, which include Lucky, about Joe Biden winning the presidency and shattered uh, his account of how Hillary Clinton lost the presidency. So welcome back, Jonathan. Pleasure to be with you, Charlie, on this Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah. What's your best memory of uh, Pearl Harbor? Where Do you remember where you were? <laughs> I'm trying to think. What, 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 uh, I remember where I was when I watched the film Pearl Harbor, and I remember uh, George H. W. Bush uh, misremembering it as September 7th uh, one year. Um, but yeah, well, that happens but, to us all. It comes for us all. Oh, I know. I mean, a one hundred percent. I think the press corps gave him Christmas presents on September twenty fifth. But <laughs> you know, I, look, I, I'm old enough to have spent um, you know a fair amount of time talking to folks from that uh, greatest generation, as my as my colleague Tom Brokaw at NBC uh, termed it, you know, and, and the World War II generation, and to have grandparents who served in the military at the time. So, you know, I, I think um, it's a cause for all of us to reflect on uh, just how close this world came to, you know, utter destruction and the export of authoritarianism. Well, you know, what's interesting. I, I, of course, grew up with stories of, uh, of Pearl Harbor because, uh, you know, both my parents, uh, my, my, my father served in World War II and uh, my mother actually lost her first husband um, in, in combat in, in World War II. But, you know, I'm trying to remember when it, it finally dawned on me that, you know, World, Pearl Harbor was one of the worst defeats the American military ever suffered, that it was a complete disaster, a catastrophe. And it's kind of interesting how history remembers things. You know, obviously the galvanizing moment, you know, the the, the giant is awakened. But it, that was a, in terms of military fiascos, one of the darkest days that this country has ever had. And it was. And it took me many years to realize what an unmitigated defeat it was. But we didn't remember it that way. No, and I mean, you know, it's it, our our sort of collective narrative is very light on the mistakes that allowed that to happen, including not thinking that Japan would, you know, fly across the Pacific to uh, to to hit all of our ships in a single port at the same time. Um, so, I, you know, uh, I think you know what's fascinating to me about it is that it reveals the uh the leadership of franklin roosevelt and you know in the on, across the pond you know the british fondly remember the leadership of winston churchill mm. and it was from dark moments that they rose and galvanized their countries and i think you know very much both of them leveled with their people you know but churchill with blood sweat toil and tears and and roosevelt you know even in that first address uh, about the, the date that she'll live in infamy. I, you know, I mean, I don't think he was yeah. sugarcoating anything about how difficult this was going to be. And for and Roosevelt had wanted to get into World War II for for some time, or at least had wanted to be supportive of 
uh, what would become the, the allies uh, with the United States. So, you know, I think very different kind of leadership at that time than, than we see today from our political officials, at least from uh, the very top. And what a transformational moment it was. I was talking with David Frum on the podcast about this yesterday. The the dominance of the isolationists at various points during the 1930s, how reluctant this country was to get into the war. You had Charles Lindbergh leading the first America first movement, which, of course, has has echoes today. And you had uh, lots of very prominent Americans who were, you know, deeply invested in keeping us out of that war. And I know that there were public opinion polls you know, in in the late 30s, uh, overwhelming uh, public sentiment against participating in that war. But um, after December 7th, 1941, this country came together and there there was, I mean, this, this was a unity of purpose that really did define that generation and defined America for the next half century. It's, uh, I'm not sure we we're ever capable of that again, but it was quite a moment. And by the way, speaking of memories of this, when I used to do my talk radio show back in the 1990s, I was still in Wisconsin. I was still able to open up the phone lines and say, where were you on December 7th and have jam phone lines with people remembering what they were doing, what they were listening to, um, you know, what, what, what moment it was that they heard about all of this. So it, this really wasn't that far ago. Okay. So Jonathan, we have a ton of interesting stuff to talk about today. And I want to talk about how George has just gone nuclear. But can we start off by talking about uh, Devin Nunes uh, deciding to bail on Congress. He's going to become the CEO of this, at the moment, largely imaginary social media company created by Donald Trump, the Trump Media and Technology Group. So talk to me about that. Devin Nunes was poised possibly to become chairman of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee which used to be kind of the goal of anyone who served in Congress to be able to have that kind of power and that influence. And he decided, yeah, no, nah, not that interested. I'm going to go do social media with Donald Trump. Um, yeah, I, I think I think Devin Nunes wants to be famous more than uh, <laughs> he wants to be you know, powerful in the sense of making policy in Congress. Um, and so this seems to be a route for that. Uh, Famous and rich. Chairman of the Ways and Means is not is not necessarily as as well known as you know the head of a big media company um, for Trump. On the other hand, uh, he is giving up uh, quite a lot of formal power. Um, You know, not everybody can name um, you know Dan Rostenkowski, former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Um, but you know uh, Roger Ailes was pretty pretty well known. Yeah, well, obviously the, the the salary will be higher as well. So you've you've written about this. Uh, his he he has a solid Republican district, so he could pretty much count on being reelected. But there was a little bit of a question mark, right? Because you had an independent redistricting commission that's released some draft maps that would suggest that you know m- maybe he's not as solid as he was would have been in the past. That have any effect on this? Yeah, you know? yeah, that's that's right. The 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 first drafts from the uh, redistricting commission, you know, he's got a district in the uh, Central Valley in California, um, and uh, from from what you could see in those maps, uh, it looked like it was going to be a tough race for him if if the Democrats could, uh, you know, could really get their act together. Um, you know, obviously they haven't before. They've targeted him before. They've mocked him before. Um, there was a Twitter account that I think, well, I guess was actually run by a former Republican activist, but like there was a, a Twitter <laughs> account Nunes called Devin cow. Nunes' cow <laughs> that Devin Nunes, you know, sued over, um, you know, so they've, they've trolled him. 
but they haven't been able to defeat him. And uh, certainly he didn't want to lose his House seat. Um, you know, he would not be chairman of the Ways and Means Committee if he lost his House seat. Uh, you know, so like, and, you know, maybe after 20 years of, of being in Congress, um, you know, it's time to move on. You realize that as an, as an, even as an individual house member, you have a limited ability to actually get things sure. done in, t- yeah. in today's Washington. And you can cash in. Well, you made an interesting observation that he would rather be famous than powerful, but, but really, isn't this a recognition of the fact that the new power is fame? Is that right now that making the calculation, you know, uh, traditionally having the chairmanship like House Ways and Means Committee was power. But now being on Fox News or being, uh, you know, having your own social media company, that's where the real power is in American politics, isn't it? Or at least. Yeah, I, mean, certainly, I mean, certainly what we've seen by watching uh, watching the rise of individual house members and usually the extreme individual house members really since, you know, not to blame my friends at C-SPAN because they're certainly not most at fault for this, but, you know, since C-SPAN started covering the house chamber in, uh, 1979 or so, we've just seen this like trend toward, uh, the more extreme you are, the more airtime you get, uh, not on C-SPAN, but on, on everywhere else. Um, and yeah, it creates a form of power so that backbench members of Congress, uh, have an equal voice to political leadership and sometimes a greater voice than the political leadership. Um, you know, in, in an environment like that, seniority doesn't matter much. Um, and, uh, formal power doesn't matter much. And you can, uh, certainly be more recognizable. You can certainly be more wealthy and you may be more powerful by being on the outside and having a, a big media platform. You know, I had completely forgotten that at one time Devin Nunes was considered to be kind of a policy wonk before he got involved in covering up for uh, Donald Trump as, as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He was kind of known as as, as a policy guy. And and I noticed that, uh, you know, NPR's Tim Mack tweeted out that, uh, that Nunes actually at one time had kind of a bromance with Adam Schiff, which, <laughs> you know, for those of us that just tuned into the Devin Nunes show a couple of years ago, that's kind of remarkable that, that at one time, he was a friend of Adam Schiff. They kind of got along with each other. I mean, he was a he was a moderate establishment Republican. I, Devin Nunes was. I know it's, yeah. it's hard to remember before yeah. President Trump, but I mean, he accused fellow Republicans of of being lemmings for you know following the Tea Party and uh, and you know sort of extremism on the right. And then, lo and behold, there's an opportunity to get close to Donald Trump and. Devin Nunes is is no longer interested in being a moderate establishment Republican and and becomes quite the opposite. So how does that happen? I know you've thought about this a lot. How how does a guy go from being a reasonable, moderate, policy-oriented Republican to becoming a MAGA head? I mean, they don't actually hand out the red pills, right, in those conferences. Is it just a gradual process or, or looking around at what are the incentives? Do you suddenly, you know, going back to what we were saying before, when you realize that, Working hard, keeping your head down, passing bills, being a statesman is so last century. Now you become a, a meme lord or whatever. Um, is that what happened? Realizing that 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 that's the you know that he got the dopamine hit from you know being a celebrity in MAGA world. Yeah, I think it's almost a personality thing more than anything else, right? It's not it's not about the policy. Um, it's not about ideology. Um, you know, Donald Trump is neither easily def- defined as moderate or conservative. He may be defined as extreme, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not, not traditional conservative. So, um, you know, I think this is a personality issue. I, I mm. think Nunes identifies with Trump's personality. 
and Nunez having gone from, you know, sort of establishment, uh, you know, rising in the establishment to rising in MAGA world is somebody who was seeking to rise. Um, and his ambition is, you know, more important than any of the particular issues. Yeah. So here, here's the interesting twist that, that he's going to be now he will be the CEO of a of Trump's social media company. Devin Nunes has no experience in tech whatsoever, except, for example, you know, suing Twitter and suing individual Twitter users that made fun of him. I mean, that that's the extent of his social media background. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, I, 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 I could, I don't know that I could put it better than you did, Charlie. I mean, yeah, yeah he sued Devin Nunes' <laughs> cow, um, and a variety of other people. Um, and so, yeah, I, there's no indication that he is, uh, an expert in social media, but he doesn't really have to be. I mean, what he has to be is a, uh, you know, a powerful ally for Trump, somebody who is, you know, repeating Trump's mantras, uh, as much as possible, uh, and who is, um, you know, pushing other people to do the tech piece and, um, you know, whatever format uh, all, all of this Trump media conglomerate takes, the, you know, it's his job to to run hurt on that. So let's, okay, now he still has one lawsuit pending, right? Against, against your, your employer, NBC Universal. He's, he thinks Rachel Maddow smeared him. So he felt the need to file a, what is undoubtedly a frivolous lawsuit there too. Uh, I, I believe that that is, uh, I believe that's still alive. I haven't been paying super close attention to it. Yeah. No. To it. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's talk about, uh, speaking of other political, uh, really interesting political developments, uh, the state of Georgia is obviously going to be kind of ground zero next year. Uh, things have really gone nuclear, um, with, uh, David Perdue getting into the governor's race, but let's start with, uh, Stacey Abrams running for governor a second time. So, what, what is her thinking? This this came kind of as a surprise. She she had been doing her thing. Um, the conventional wisdom is that that the political winds are shifting toward the Republicans. So she lost last time. The environment is worse. So you you've written about this. You've been in touch with Stacey Abrams' world. Why does she think that this time might be better than last time? There are really sort of cross-cutting trends that she sees. One is, of course, what you mentioned, which is the bad national environment for uh, Democrats. But the other is uh, a state of Georgia where you've seen uh, an increase of 1.3 million uh, people on the voter rolls um, since that 2018 race. You've seen a quarter of a million increase since 2020. Um, 47% of the 1.3 million are people of color. I mean, Stacey Abrams sees an electorate that is um, is younger, uh, less white, uh, more hospitable to Democrats. And, you know, as, as the proof point, you would see, um, you know, a state that was, I think, eight points for Romney in 2012, five points for Trump in 2016, you know, about a point and a half for Brian Kemp against Stacey Abrams in 2018. Um, and then, you know, went for Biden by a whisker and went by Raphael Warnock for a whisker and went for John Ossoff for, uh, by a whisker, mm. you know, within a couple of months in, at the end of 2020 and early 2021. So she sees that trend as, you know, working against the national environment. Well, these are big numbers. I mean, by the way, Charlie, I should say a trend that she created. Yeah. Right. I mean, she's the, the force for voter registration and turnout. Um, you know, some of that is nonpartisan. The registration piece of it is, is, is nonpartisan, the turnout, um, you know, often partisan, but she's been the, the, uh, the engine for that, uh, in Georgia with her fair fight 
group. Yeah, you know, I'm usually kind of skeptical about campaign spin, but but these numbers are pretty impressive. You know th- that the electorate is is as she told you or her people told you far larger, younger, and less white than the one that handed her in the narrow defeat last time around. I mean, 1.3 million new registrations. That's an impressive number. 47% of them people of color, 31.6 black, 43% of them under 30 years old. Of course, the real challenge is getting those voters to actually vote. I mean, this is, you, 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 it's one thing to register voters who are, should we say, somewhat more disengaged. Uh, but this has been the long-term challenge. You know, every, every time that I see a politician who's counting on the youth vote, I kind of roll my eyes because, you know, whatever the spin is, that's going to be a risky bet, right? Because young people just do not vote in the numbers that uh, that, that the pundits are always projecting they're going to vote. It's interesting. You're right about that, Charlie. And, and that's why I find Georgia to be fascinating is because we've seen such an increase in voter participation in Georgia. You know, whatever it is Stacey Abrams is doing, it seems to be working. You know, we saw an electorate that was, I think, roughly 4 million uh, in 2018, you know, become an electorate that was 5 million in yeah. the runoff elections. Um, you know, they, they really are doing a, a pretty good job of getting new registrants to go out and vote. And, you know, look, if I told you five years ago or say six or seven years ago that Georgia was going to be more Democratic than Wisconsin, <laughs> no, <laughs> you, know, you would have told me I was nuts or or even in line with it. Right. I mean, you know, so that this is, um, you know, there's something that's changed on the ground there and, and it's. Abrams now whether whether she can win in this bad environment you know remains to be seen and um, there's obviously going to be a pretty ugly Republican primary I talked to a professor at University of Georgia Charles Bullock who said uh, of the primary that it'll be the biggest bloodletting since uh, Sherman went through Atlanta in 1864 <laughs> so <laughs> well, I, I there's a lot to be a lot to be well, seen in this race well I want to get to that in just a second so you did ask them about the question of you know the the environment next year Republicans making big gains in Virginia and New Jersey so obviously she's seeing something different in Georgia right that that, yeah, that this is not New Jersey this is not Virginia yeah, it's, I mean, it's simply the diversity of the suburbs in Georgia. And and really, when you're talking about the suburbs in Georgia, I mean, there are a couple other pockets, but really you're talking about Atlanta, metro Atlanta. Um, and, you know, 52% of suburbanites, according to their, you know, her campaign's numbers are people of color, whereas um, in, you know, Virginia and New Jersey, it's 25% and 17% respectively. So where you see a trend among um, among particularly among white suburbanites, uh, toward Republicans in Virginia and New Jersey in 2021, you, um, you know, the numbers, the share of the electorate that is uh, white suburbanites is, is much smaller in, in Georgia. Well, and the Cook political report uh, shifted the race from leans Republican to toss up after Abrams announced. So they're, they, they think this is different. Okay. And now, Going back to your point about how the the Republican primary, I mean, this is going to be this massive bloodletting. Uh, you have David Perdue, who lost his Senate seat, is now jumping in to the governor's race, challenging Brian Kemp. So, so Perdue loses to John Ossoff in the Senate runoff, and and now he's running for governor with Trump's backing. So, talk to this. This is going to be one of the messiest, highest profile primaries in the entire country. And it really does 
turn on whether or not Republicans need to embrace the Trump big lie for all the talk about moving on. They are stuck in that amber in Georgia, aren't they? I mean, the only argument really for Republicans against Brian Kemp is that he didn't help Donald Trump overturn Georgia's electoral votes, right? That he refused to do that. So, um, you know, it really is about Trumpism and it's about personality and it's, you know, it's not about policies. And this is the point that Kemp's folks are making. They're like, look, the the Georgia economy is doing well. Um, You know, they resisted, um, resisted lockdowns. In fact, Trump criticized Kemp uh, in, uh, you know, the early days of the pandemic for, uh, you know, sort of resisting lockdown orders. Um, but that made Kemp more conservative, I guess, or more Trumpy than Trump at the time. Um, it really does come down to, are you willing to overturn an election and, and how badly will voters punish you for refusing to do so? Well, what's so weird about this is, <laughs> get your take, take on this, is so, so Purdue loses the Senate seat. He loses in large part because of, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, spreading the big lie, suppressing the Republican vote. And yet somehow Purdue is thinking it's not his fault for the for losing himself. It's not Trump's fault. It's Brian Kemp's fault. I mean, it's kind of this weird upside down fantasy world that he's living in here. Yeah, I mean, my guess is that Purdue himself is not living in fantasy land, but is instead looking at national trends, the ones we were just talking about, and thinking there's a reasonably good chance that if he can win this primary, uh, he can be he can be the next governor of Georgia, uh, and with Trump and believes with Trump's endorsement that either Kemp will get out or that he will defeat Kemp. So, what, what do you uh, the the other race, of course, in Georgia that everybody's going to be watching will be uh, you know Herschel Walker running for the Senate seat held by, uh, you know, Ralph Warnock. I mean, that this is, it just strikes me that this is a very winnable year for Republicans in Georgia. And, and it, you know, a year from now, we may be looking back on this as, as a series of blown opportunities, putting up a really flawed Senate candidate and then ripping one another um, apart in the, in the primary, which weakens them going into the general election. I mean, the Republican Party is... Uh, it's got issues in Georgia, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, absolutely. And and look, I mean, you know, usually when people hear Herschel Walker's running, they get they get out of the way, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was, right. Yeah, I was pretty good at running down the yeah. running down the field and delivering shots as he did. Um, you know, that said, he's obviously an unproven political commodity. His background is, um, you know, some of it is very public. I think some of it is not. We're starting to you know starting to get stories about, um, you know, uh, of personal issues. And and so, you know, I don't know where the Georgia electorate is. I would say that this follows the Trump model very much, right? In terms of somebody who's famous for something other than politics, getting into politics and trying to ride that fame. And we've seen that work at times. You know, we've seen people, you know, astronauts tend to get elected. Occasionally Hollywood stars sure. get elected. Um, but we've also seen it fail spectacularly more times, I think, than we've seen it work. Yeah. How do you think Dr. Oz is going to do in Pennsylvania? Uh, I don't know, but he's uh, he's going to spend a lot of money. Uh, he may he may need to establish residence there, um, or may want to. Yeah, see, there's something about. I mean, Doctor Oz, I was going to get a lot of attention, but you kind of wonder whether or not the the hype is going to play out. Because I see that the Club for Growth is already running ads about the uh, number of times he's contributed to Democrats, and uh, let, let's face it, there's a guy with some very significant baggage as well in terms of the various frauds he's been involved. So 
not not sure that he solved all the Republican problems in Pennsylvania um, either. So yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, look, the, the the odds of the Republicans like completely blowing a really good opportunity to take take over the Senate this year seem high. Yeah. Right. Like nobody, nobody in Washington's talking about like, uh, the Senate, the way they're talking about the house, uh, you know, the, really? for most people in Washington, the, the Republicans taking over the house and doing so pretty convincingly seems like a foregone conclusion. Um, in the Senate, there's, uh, there is not a similar expectation. Interesting. Also some developments with the January 6th committee. I mean, I, I understand the frustration that they're not moving quicker and that they're being obstructed by people like uh, like Steve Bannon. And apparently just this morning, Mark Meadows uh, attorney says he's no longer cooperating with them. Um, very shortly after we hear that Donald Trump is really unhappy with Mark Meadows book and he's cast in outer darkness, so he's not cooperating. But it is interesting that Mark Short, who's the former chief of staff to uh, Mike Pence, is cooperating with the committee. And uh, the suggestion that I've seen is that uh, Pence World is being quite cooperative, which I don't know. I that strikes me as a potential BFD. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I look. It serves Mike Pence, who obviously wants to run for president. I, I don't know how far he's going to go with that, but he obviously wants to run for president. It would serve him if, um, you know, if President Trump were to be broadly discredited. Um, because as it stands, Pence is in the position of, uh, being one of the people who helped deny, and I, I don't, I'm not saying I believe this, but like the, the perception is that he's one of, uh, among Trump supporters is one of the people that helped deny president Trump a second term. So like, yeah. you know, th- that puts him in a very awkward position unless Donald Trump essentially goes away. Um, and, and what that means, you know is is all of the people who were close to Trump end up getting punished for being close to Trump. Um, so, you know, it's not it wouldn't be surprising if the Pence people also, by the way, um, you know, the crowd that rioted at the Capitol wanted to hang Mike Pence yes. and they were looking for Mike Pence. So, like, it shouldn't be shocking that people in Pence world are willing to cooperate to uh, hold those who who were trying who wanted to kill the vice president of the United States accountable in some minor way. Um, you know, you could have seen these trials going a different way, um, you know, a, a stiffer way than they have. And so I think, you know, as far as Mark Short goes, we will see how cooperative he is. Uh, you know, the, one of the sources I talked to yesterday, who's familiar with the committee's activities, said he's cooperating so far. Well, he went on, didn't he go on David Axelrod's podcast? And I thought he was pretty direct in pushing back against some of the comments that uh, Trump had made that it was completely, you know, reasonable that people would say, hang Mike Pence, right? I mean, he was counting the votes. So if uh, if Mark Short is doing podcasts with people like David Axelrod, that would kind of indicate that he's kind of ready to break with Trump world or at least put some distance. Yeah, I mean, I think he's willing to break with Trump world. I, I think the, the other, but... What remains to be seen is like who exactly who will throw under the bus and how and what information yeah. he actually has and the degree to which it's valuable to the committee. And, you know, I mean, when people are, you know, come forward with things under subpoena, you know, you got to check and see if any of it's useful. Sure. At least that's what that's what I'm, I'm told from uh, from my sources. So John Eastman um, says on Steve Bannon's podcast that he's going to assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. His deposition scheduled for Wednesday. 
Longtime advisor Jason Miller has been ordered to appear for a deposition on Friday. I'm not guessing that Jason Miller is going to be cooperating. So at least they're they are moving there. Now, I, I heard a report yesterday, and I, I think it was on on NBC, that uh, that the committee is planning, you know, quite a lot of uh, public hearings next year. That they will be having prime time public testimony. What do you know about that, if anything? Um, I don't have any, uh, I don't have any reporting on that myself, but I, you know, I, I think they'd obviously like to do that. I mean, they, they want to turn public opinion, uh, in order to t- turn public opinion, you have to pe- have people, uh, on television being watched by the public. Um, and in order to be able to do that, you have to do all these preliminary depositions. So you know, who's going to say what, um, and you know, where the stories don't match up and you know, where the, you know, the damning evidence is, um, you know, we saw this with impeachment twice, really the first time more than the second time. The second one was a little quicker through the process. But, the you know, the first impeachment, we saw a process like this where there were depositions behind closed doors and then there was public testimony and people, you know, can remember the State Department officials and Gordon mm-hmm, Sondland mm-hmm. and um, all those folks. The idea is to turn public opinion here. It's not, you know, the January 6th commission is does not exist or the committee does not exist um, in, a, in a real sense solely for the purpose of, of creating a historical record. It, yep. it exists in part for um, the public, you know, effectively the public theater that will presumably, uh, not presumably, I shouldn't say presumably, that will yeah. uh, the, possibly um, change the views of some of the people who've been supportive of President Trump. Well, it's also clear that I think that they're going to have access to a great deal of information that we didn't uh, you know, have earlier, including this uh, long memo from uh, National Guard uh, Colonel uh, yesterday, kind of a whistleblower, saying that uh, senior generals in the Army were just flat out lying to Congress about what they did and what they said on January 6th. So you kind of re- you know, get, a, get a sense that there are going to be some cracks. Um, there are there's some vulnerabilities in terms of covering up what what's been going on i mean that report i thought was was rather was rather riveting to think that uh, that you know top officials of the national guard who were on that phone call at 2:30 p.m. on the day of january 6th and heard these top generals saying they would recommend against immediate deployment of the national guard and then watch them turn around and say no 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 we never said that so um there's some dirty laundry that's going to be aired and i'm 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 guessing that that's the kind of thing that you will be seeing in, in public testimony and when there's an, an attempted coup, it's not surprising that some of the plotters right. take a while to be found out, or even the people who who you know didn't act to put it down are, are found out. And so, you know, I think that's what we're going to get from the committee is who you know who helped organize this, how did they help organize it, um, who could have stood in the way and chose to stand down, who ordered other people to stand down, um, you know. But the, like, make no mistake, what we saw on January sixth was not like. Uh, a random rabble of people like running into no. the Capitol. No. So let's talk about Bob Dole for a moment. Um, I think it's interesting that your your father, your dad, was a former reporter with UPI who covered Bob Dole. So you have Allen family multiple generations covering politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I like to describe it like being a bricklayer's son. You know, I have one, <laughs> one skill in, in life, and it's the one I got from my dad. Yeah, um, that's pretty much <laughs> my story, too, I'm afraid. So your dad, Ira Allen, did cover Bob Dole. He did cover Bob Dole. Um, he, you know, he flew with him on campaign flights. He covered him in the Senate. 
Um, you know, my uh, my father was remembering the other day on Facebook that uh, you know he's remembering Dole's you know Dole's wit and his willingness to kind of get into the fray and good humor, um, and and trade back and forth with reporters in a in a way that was um, you know both spirited and um, you know and, and fun um, and sometimes acerbic. Uh, but I, yeah, I think I think my dad uh, you know certainly respected Dole. Um, as as a serious leader, um, and like you know, look, we have no have no farther to look than things like, you know, the McGovern Dole Food Stamp Act, to see the ability of past political leaders to get along with each other for you know priorities for the country and not savage each other and you know the abyss of of, of slippery slopes where they <laughs> they always say if I give an inch you know I'm going to have to give a mile. Right. Um, and the only is they said look we got we got a lot of excess food being produced by farmers and we have a lot of people in cities who need the food like maybe we could figure out how to get this going and then maybe we could export it to the world and so i think dole was a different kind of leader and one you know to bring it full circle and i'm sure this is what you're intending to do you know going back to that world war ii generation somebody who sacrificed a lot somebody who loved his country um and somebody you know who gave um this is something my my father said you sort of gave the benefit of the doubt uh to the other side to the democrats that uh that they actually loved their country too yeah, see, this is I thought was the most interesting point that your dad made. This was back in that he that he was a fierce advocate of Republicans. I mean, he was a hard edged partisan, but it was at, at a time when the that party Republicans stood for something, and when their leadership thought that Democrats were actually Americans. So he had close relationships with people across the aisle. And he was able to trade barbs with him. There was a sense of of lines that weren't crossed. And this is what's interesting about Bob Dole is because he's so complicated because he was snarky. Um, he could be um, he was, you know, early on, his reputation was he was kind of a hatchet man for the the RNC. I mean, people knew that he could be a little bit brittle. On the other hand, he, he did have this sort of uh, you know strain of, of gentleness, his post presidential run career was was humorous and self and, and, and self uh, and self-effacing so i mean it's, it's a complicated situation but again this was when politics could be tough and rough but there were lines you didn't cross do you follow what i'm saying there where I do, you I didn't say yeah yeah i think the the main one is that you don't do things that are detrimental to the country to help your party and yeah. you know that's what I think we've we've lost, and uh, you know that's I don't want to engage in both sidesism here, but I mean, look the the willingness to the willingness to put your party above your country, or you know hurt your country a little bit so you can help your party a lot, uh, seems to be a much more popular idea today than it was in Bob Dole's time. And to me, that's um, certainly not how I view the world. Uh, but I also don't have a party, so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, easier for me to say. So your la- most recent best-selling book was called Lucky, which was your discussion of how Joe Biden won the presidency and the way in which he was very lucky at various points during that campaign. Uh, I was interested in getting your take now that we're talking in December 2021 because, well, I, I ask you, it's, did did Joe Biden's luck run out in 2021? Because he doesn't yeah, feel like he's I mean, had a yes. lucky run lately. He has not had a lucky run lately. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, that, and and uh, you know, some of it is more, some of it's more more luck or less luck. But when you have a string of it, <laughs> of it in one direction, yeah. 
got into bad luck. I mean, look, the inflation, um, you know, the, the, the Afghanistan exit could have been uh, executed better, but also, you know, it could have been, it, it could have been executed better. And at the same time, like, it's possible that they would have gotten away with the poor execution and not seen, you know, Americans die or, or see, um, you know, some of the horrors that we've seen in Afghanistan. So, you know, to that extent, you know, there's, there's bad luck, but in addition to that, you know, you're watching the inflation, you're watching some of his fellow Democrats not giving him, uh, you know, a hand in Congress, you know, so there's, there's a, a bunch of stuff that's going on. That's just not been, been particularly helpful to him. And of course, um, you know, we're seeing him, uh, act in office as one might expect, which is to say, you know, always looking for that consensus point instead of leading to that consensus point, taking a long time to make decisions. Um, you know, this Beijing uh, Olympics decision, uh-huh. the decision for the diplomatic boycott, people were calling on him in both parties to do that for a long, long time. And it took it took quite a while to get there. You know, so on the one hand, the temperature has been uh, turned down in Washington. On the other hand, um, it's a pretty reactive presidency. You know, that, that's an interesting point, because I remember thinking and probably saying and, and writing that last year that Joe Biden seemed like the man for the moment, that he was that he was a really good fit for what the country needed to recover from Trumpism. And now I'm thinking that he, he's very clearly a mismatch for the moment, by which I mean that he seems to still believe that you can be reactive as the president, that these are normal political times, uh, that there is a return to normalcy, when in fact the times would indicate that, no, we are not at all in normal political uh, universe. So you have this throwback politician from a from a for, you know a, a bygone era at a time when all of the rules and the culture have changed and it, it does seem to be a mismatch do you disagree with that do you have a different take on it you you i think he was right for the moment of the campaign i'm yeah. not sure he's right for the moment of governance yeah. and yeah and look he's gotten it. a couple things done like, I, yeah. you know i think anybody coming in would have gotten got, gotten the uh vaccination supplemental done the 1.9 you know, trillion dollars at the beginning of the year. He's got the infrastructure bill done. Trump couldn't get that done, even though that should have been relatively low-hanging fruit. And, and we'll see what happens with this Build Back Better Act. But, you know, sort of more broadly, like this is a this is a period in, uh, it's certainly in American history, where, you know, even if you don't want the president to be on your screen all the time, um, you know, a sort of leadership helps get things done both domestically and internationally. Um, and, you know, the feeling that there's uh, somebody in the White House that is active and proactive, um, I think, is, is, you know, reassuring to a lot of Americans as long as they're not right. unhappy with the direction. Yeah, I, I remember thinking that that Americans were really hungry for a president that they could ignore. But I think that's wrong. I, I think that there's been now this expectation that you want to see the president out there, active, engaged pushing various things and maybe that and again that's that's just the the new world that we live in now i mean it's it's the way that obama i mean you know obama was very much somebody who was taking advantage of new media and and taking advantage of new uh new ways of reaching the public outside of um traditional media and was you know for like compared to trump sure like boring but also like at least in this, his first couple of years you know very very active and i you know i think Biden doesn't like to make decisions. He doesn't like to be, um, you know, doesn't like to be seen as uh, as somebody who's on one extreme or, or the other. Um, and that, 
as the president, you you kind of got to take charge, or your agenda's going to languish. Yeah. So so he he he's had a tough run, but at least in the last week, the the uh, the Democrat who's had the really the worst run has been uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. It does seem the knives are out for her. What is your sense? Is she being quailized? Is she being turned into this presidency's Dan Quayle? Um, you know, that's a that's an interesting and and you know some somewhat apt comparison. I mean, look, Kamala Harris has never had staff stick around. Um, you know, my co-author Amy Parnes and I wrote in our, our book, um, you know, that Harris was uh, Harris was better at playing the part than living it. Um, <laughs> meaning she was the the West Wing writer's dream and the West Wing aides nightmare. Um, of course, we wrote that. Interesting. You know, before she was vice president. Um, and so, so, so she's struggling. But I also think she is, um, you know, uh, the victim of being the target of uh, a lot of Republicans who recognize that Joe Biden is not personally unpopular um, and the target of all the Democrats who want somebody else to be the next Democratic nominee, um, you know, which gives her a lot of enemies. And not to mention a White House that needs to shift blame for its failure to get certain things done to someone other than the president. So, you know, you you add all that up and it's hard to find, it's hard for Kamala Harris to find friends. And it's very easy for her to find people that will publicly take shots at her. Yeah, that is kind of a perfect storm. So Jonathan Allen, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, Jonathan Allen, senior national politics reporter for NBC News. Books include Lucky about Joe Biden's winning the presidency and Shattered about the uh, 2016 election. Jonathan, thanks for coming back. Of course. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.